0: Thank you for listening to this message from South Ridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today, and that you find new ways to apply his word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on SouthRidgeCC.org. So let's get started.
1: Well, this time of year, maybe you buy something online. I don't know, maybe it's a TV or kitchen implement or, or something of that nature. And when you buy something online, what are some of the first things, or what are some things that you look at when you make a purchase online? Ratings, Ratings reviews. Like you guys are so smart. I guess it's because you're here earlier. Like I, 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 I didn't hear it at all. But I asked that first service like three times, and it's like the cost, which certainly is true. Uh, the name brand, the quality. And I was like, guys, the reviews. So great job, way to go. Um, so, yeah, you look at the reviews. Now, uh, you know my artistic ch- uh, skills are challenging. Uh, so, I'm just going to draw like one star up here, and I'll barely get that right. Like, this is as good as it gets with this. That's pretty good, right? This is it's a starfish. Yeah, Anyway, so because that's so taxing on me, I'm just going to draw circles for the others, okay? Like, you only get one star um, because it's too taxing for me to draw that kind of level of artistry. Um, so, So yeah, when you buy something online, you look at the reviews, you look at how many stars it has. It's important. What kind of quality are you getting? How satisfied were other people who made this same purchase? That's basically what you're finding out. Here's a question that dawned on me this week that I'm not sure that I really wrestled this specifically with before, but let me ask you this question, and it'll probably give you a moment to think about it. If you had to do a review of God, if you rated God, how many stars would he get? How many stars would God get if you rated him in your life? What would his reviews look like online and in your life as well? It's kind of a provocative question. And the churchy question, the churchy answer is, the Christianese response oh, five, of course. God's perfect. And yes, that is true. God is perfect. And so therefore, we know that he gets five-star reviews because God is perfect. But that's it's kind of a churchy answer, isn't it? And so, so, so really, your experience with God, the way that you've seen things happen in your life, Would you, is there a fly up here? These flies are everywhere. If would you give God a one-star review, a two? How does that work? Well, this morning we're gonna look at a text in Mark chapter 4, and the disciples of Jesus run into some challenging circumstances, and we hear that Jesus, rather than engaging with them, solving the problem with them, is actually asleep. At the earliest part of the story, he'd probably get one star at best. And so Liv's going to come up and read Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And as she reads, just kind of track in your mind, how would Jesus be reviewed in this scenario? Jesus is fully God. So how would God be reviewed in the scenario that Liv is going to read?
0: Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him.
1: We're going to look at four things as we go through these verses we're going to look at bad rating, a biting accusation, a probing question, and an ultimate answer. Uh, First, a bad rating. Look at verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, that is Jesus, let us go over to the other side. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Now, just kind of frame this for a second. Whose idea is it that they travel across the Sea of Galilee in a boat? It's Jesus' idea, right? I mean, this isn't the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, we've got an agenda that we'd like you to accomplish. We're going to take a trip. We're going to take a boat ride. Why don't you join us? There's nothing of that happening. I mean, many times I think probably in our lives, we say, hey, Jesus, like, could you like get on board with my plan? Like, do my deal? The disciples, that's not what they're doing. It's actually Jesus. It says, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go. To, this is his idea. They're not just launching out on their own. They're not launching out independently. It's actually his idea that they get in the boat and go across the sea. It's a pretty safe deal that if they're following him, that things will go well. Well, kind of the opposite happens because in verse 37, here's what it says. A furious squall came up, and the waves break over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, I would expect... But if it's Jesus' idea that they're to get in the boat and go across the sea, if it's his idea, they're following him. And if they're following him, my expectation would be things are going to go well. It's going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. It's going to be comfortable. The food's going to be great. The entertainment's going to be good. It's all good. But they get into a boat and the exact opposite happens and they're with Jesus. The storm comes up. They think they're gonna drown. The boat just about gets swamped. They're scared to death, but Jesus is there. They were following him. What's up with that? You ever kind of wondered that yourself a little bit? Like Jesus, like I thought I was doing your deal, and this is how it goes. I thought I was sort of following you. I'm not doing my own deal, but like in terms of your performance rating for being in the boat, Jesus is about a one. They're with him. You would expect it to be five. He's in the boat. It's his idea. They're taking his trip. It's not their idea. It's his. It's his initiative. You would expect a five-star rating for the experience, and it's hardly even a one-star rating. Now, I don't mean to be critical of this, but just to kind of like highlight it, there's a lot of plans for how you become a follower of Jesus and what that looks like. But one of those plans, kind of in the middle of it, says this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, again, that's absolutely true in the ultimate sense, but at least when I hear in the beginning, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, if Jesus would have said that to the disciples before they stepped in the boat, I'm like, yeah, awesome. God, lo- Jesus loves us, and he has a wonderful plan for our life, meaning the trip is going to go well. It's going to be smooth. It's going to be placid. It's going to be calm. It's going to be peaceful. It's going to be comfortable. Everything is good. But that's actually far from what happens. And notice something else happens here too, which kind of bothers me and should bother you. It also says, noticed in that earlier verse, it says he leaves the crowds behind. Um, Jesus doesn't often do what seems to be practical. Like if I was Jesus' manager at that moment, I would say, man, if you've got crowds, stick with the crowds. If you've got attention, if you've got the crowds, stick with the crowds. Go with the momentum. Keep the momentum going. Instead, all the crowds are there, and he's like, no, let's get out of here. Remember when the Accelerate speaker was here, he said, remember, like, God's not always practical. He's not always pragmatic. He's not always efficient. He doesn't always make decisions like saying, ah, oh, like, that's the smart move. Jesus makes kind of a foolish move, and he says, ah, there's all the crowds. Let's leave. Like, if I'm managing Jesus, I was, hey, here's all the crowds. Let's keep this thing going. You know, I think probably Mary could have sensed the same thing as well. I mean, the Christmas story is incredibly beautiful. But think of how Mary felt. We mentioned earlier, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal, right? I mean, that's supernatural. It's the intervening hand of God in her life. Well, like, couldn't God have arranged the circumstances just a little differently so that she could have delivered the baby at home? Like, like if he did something so supernatural that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, couldn't he also figure out a better calendar for this event to happen so that Joseph and Mary aren't traveling to Bethlehem and she doesn't have to give birth and lay the baby in a manger? Like, is that too much for God to handle? If he can handle the one, why can't he handle the other? I mean, he gets a five-star rating for the supernatural conception of by the Holy Spirit, but probably a one-star rating in terms of accommodations. That should make you very nervous about God. This is a great verse, and again, its I don't mean to, well, I'll just say it. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, 11. It's a great verse. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. I love that verse. I sincerely love that verse, but I know my problem is I can look at that verse through my 21st century American lens, it's like, oh, like God's going to prosper me. He's not going to harm me. Life is going to go well. You'll get entrance into the right college. You'll make the right career choices. You'll get the right promotions. You'll get the right spouse. You'll get the right house. You'll have the white picket fence. You'll have the nice lawn. You'll have the comfortable resources financially around you to take trips and take vacations. You'll have a nice, comfortable retirement. That's what it looks like to me. Plans to prosper. That's often how we hear it. But that's actually far from what God's intent is. Now He may give us good gifts, and he often does, and our hearts pour out in thankfulness to him. But what we're going to see is it goes a lot deeper than that. So there's kind of a bad rating they're following Jesus. Again, this isn't their agenda. They're not launching out on their own. They're actually following Jesus into this. So it's a bad rating. Number secondly, secondly, abiding accusation. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, now what comes next is not just an informational question. It's not like, hey, let me do an interview for you. He says, teacher, don't you care if we drown? That's not a question that they're really looking for him to answer to. They know the answer before they ask the question. Because the answer they have to the question is, obviously, he doesn't care about us. Obviously, he's disconnected from who we are. And the idea of him sleeping seems to be, yes, yes. Jesus is a sleeping God. He's fully human. He needs physical rest. He's exhausted from the trip. He experiences the same challenges physically as we do. But sleeping also seems to have the connotations of inactivity. When you're sleeping, you're not getting something done, which is why we are often sleepless in our culture because we're self-driven So Jesus is sleeping. He seems to be inactive. And so the disciples are saying, hey, we're in this boat because you invited us in here. We're not here. We didn't invite you in here. You invited us in here. Meanwhile, we need your help, and you are inactive. You're absent without leave. You've fallen asleep on the job. You're not fulfilling your job description as the God of this boat. So there's a sense of accusation. Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher. It's from him we get get the idea of the Epicurus Trilemma. That's the whole idea. If God was all-powerful, he would stop suffering from happening. If God was all-powerful, he would stop suffering from happening. He has the power to do that. If God is all-good, he would want to stop evil or suffering from happening. Well, because evil, and, because evil and suffering still happen, it either means God is not good or he's not all-powerful. If he was all-powerful, God could stop suffering from happening. He could stop bad things. He could have stopped the storm if he's all-powerful. If he's all-good, that means he should desire to want to stop the storm or not let the storm come up. He should want to stop evil. He should want to stop suffering. But both... Suffering and evil still continue. Therefore, God is either not good or he's not all-powerful. That's sort of the Epicurus trilemma. And by the way, just if you think that that's like, maybe you're so spiritual that you don't wrestle with those things. Remember, we launched this series by talking about a guy named John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. We said John the Baptist, his whole purpose in life The reason he's focused on it is he was a a forerunner of Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. He basically said, Hey, people, like, God has come here. You better get ready. God has come here. You better repent of your sin. God has come here. Get ready to listen to him. Not, "Don't don't listen to me. Listen to him. That's what John the Baptist's whole message was basically telling people, Get ready because Jesus is here. Well, John, because of some things that he said, got thrown into prison and got in trouble with the Roman government. And so John is locked in prison. And here's what it says. And this Matthew gives us his account in Matthew chapter 11. He says this in verse two: When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, so John's in prison. He hears about Jesus doing all the stuff. And remember, John said, like, "Hey, Jesus coming. Listen to him." He sent his disciples to ask him. So John sends his disciples to ask Jesus. Here's the question. Are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect somebody else? Ooh. Are you really what we're looking for? You're not fulfilling expectations. I'm locked in prison. So should I look for somebody else? Ever feel that way? You ever kind of wrestle with God to the extent to say, like, you know what? Should I look elsewhere? Should I go somewhere else? Is God really cracked up to be who he is? Or should you probably look somewhere else? Like, if, if, if God gets a one rating and leaving his own prophet in jail the guy who he sent to prepare his way, if Jesus leaves that guy in jail, like that's one star rating kind of material. And so John says, well, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Ever feel like you're barking up the wrong tree with God? Well, Jesus' reply doesn't help things out. It says in verse 4, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. I don't know if this helps. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Well, that's kind of a pain because John knows that's what's happening, and it's exactly what's causing him to doubt Jesus like John seeing those very things is exactly why John is doubting Jesus because all those things are happening, but here's John languishing in a Roman prison. And here's Jesus' words that should probably scare you out of your wits. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, John says to Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus says to John, John, yes, I'm healing the blind. I'm healing the lame. I'm feeding the hungry. I'm exactly who Isaiah said the, the Messiah would be. I am that person. And then he says, blessed are those who don't stumble because of me. In other words, John, I'm doing amazing things, but the way that I work is sometimes mysterious. Sometimes storms come up in boats. Sometimes my best prophets, and Jesus says earlier on that John is, one, is uh, the premier prophet of his time. Sometimes my prophets languish in, languish in prison, and you're not going to be able to figure that out. So blessed are those who know who I am, blessed are those who know my power, and yet also they experience things in their life, and they cannot figure it out, and they cannot figure out where the power of God is. Jesus says, blessed are those who don't stumble on account of the way that I operate, Because the way that Jesus operates will not fit in to your nice grid of how he's supposed to operate. They have a biting accusation. Remember last week, Jeremy covered John's account of the death of Lazarus. And Martha and Mary both have the same question of Jesus. Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. You ever ask that kind of question of Jesus? Did he ever see me slightly off time? That rather than being at the right place at the right time, he seems to be at the wrong time in the wrong place? Like he's in the boat, he's even there, and yet he doesn't function like you would think that he would function. How many times in your life do you look at circumstances around you and say, from a circumstantial perspective, from the weather that's happening in my life, God gets a one-star rating. And Jesus would say, Blessed are you if you don't stumble on account of me because my best prophets get locked up in prison and John the Baptist ultimately gets beheaded. I get in, I invite my disciples into a boat and a storm comes up. I tap... A young Virgin Mary on the shoulder and say to you, "There's going to be my son is going to be conceived in you," and it sounds wonderful and it sounds blessing, sounds like a blessing. And Mary knows that along with that blessing is going to come a lifetime of heartache, a lifetime of hardship, that her whole soul is going to be crushed by being the birth, by being the mother of Jesus the Messiah. A bad rating, a biting accusation. Thirdly, a probing question. Verse 39, he got up. He rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Interesting, there's kind of three ways that the idea of Jesus calming the waves comes across. He rebukes them. He says, quiet. He says, be still. Uh, those words, it's a little too hard to translate them. Uh, sometimes, maybe in our nostalgic sense, and I think I remember hearing this in Sunday school, it's like Jesus stood up and he says, like, shh. Uh, probably the best translation of that is like Jesus gave a pretty rough shout. Like something, uh, probably if you teach your kids not to say shut up, that's a very good thing. But it's probably almost something along those lines. And maybe to put it in a little bit better way, Jesus might have said, like, enough is enough. I mean, he wasn't like, shh. He was like, quiet. Shut your mouth. Enough is enough. He speaks with authority. It's interesting in in Luke, um, Luke chapter 4. Luke actually uses two of the words, not all three, but two of the words that Mark uses. Jesus is actually interacting with the demonic spirit. And he says this, but Jesus rebuked, that same word, rebuke. Jesus rebuked him that he's a demon, saying, be quiet. Again, word number two, be quiet, come out of him. And so Jesus interacts with this demon. He rebukes the demon. He says, be quiet. Enough is enough. I'm done with you. He says to the the waves, the wind, he rebukes them. Enough is enough. I'm done. Be quiet. I've had enough. He speaks with authority. But notice what comes next in verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? do you still have no faith? Jesus asks them a question because he wants them to understand that what's happening can give them a window into their soul. How they're responding is a demonstration that, yes, they know Jesus is in the boat, but they don't have fully full confidence in him, even though Jesus appears to be inactive, even though he's sleeping, they don't have full confidence in him that he's still in charge, even in his inactivity. And basically what he's saying to them is, guys, yes, I've stilled the storm, but my, this is Jesus' to disciples, my agenda for your life goes much deeper than just calming the sea and calming the wind and calming the waves. Instead, my agenda for your life is to, for you to actually truly know who I am and what my presence means to you. I've been memorizing this verse lately, and it's, quite honestly, it's a verse that bothers me a bit. It's in 1 Thessalonians, two verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says this. Listen to these words. May God himself, like nobody else, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. That word sanctify means make holy, make you fully his. Doesn't mean simply just moral perfection. Yes, it can certainly have moral implications, but it basically means make you fully his, that you're no one else's. Make you fully his. Notice the description. Sanctify you how? Well, like I'd be pretty good if it said sanctify you at thirty percent. Like I'm good with that. Like may the God of peace sanctify you thirty percent. That's going to be pretty painless. at thirty percent. Oh, we can handle that. But it's not what it says. It says may the God, may God Himself, the God of peace sanctify you through and through. That means every last smidgen of who you are, God wants. That probably means life is going to be pretty uncomfortable. That means that when God says, my plans are to prosper you and not to harm you, he's not saying life is going to go silky smooth and well, but instead he's saying, yes, I'm going to prosper you. I'm not going to harm you. I want you to be fully mine because to prosper means that you're fully God's. And often, my definition of how I would rate God does not look like, yeah, God gets a five star rating if I become fully His. Instead, my idea is God gets a five star rating if it does really good organizing my life for me. But instead, God's goal for my life, God's goal for your life, is for you, every last piece of you, every last molecule of you, to be fully His. And that's the most blessed, good, generous, loving thing He can do for you. Go on with that verse. May, listen to this. May your whole spirit, soul, and body. There's nothing of you other than those three things. Every little thought in your brain, every part of your soul, your spirit, your body, every little inclination, it says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Again, the Apostle Paul here isn't saying, like, hey, like, you know, New Year's is coming. Like, make your New Year's resolutions, read your Bible every day, pray every day, go to church every week, jump to the place. Like, like that's stuff of you. Those are good things. And those are good things that God uses to bring about his transforming work in your life. They're absolutely good. But notice it says, The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Which simply means this. God's at work in your life. And his call is so good. It's so generous. It's so loving. It's so gracious. He wants every last atom of your whole spirit, soul, and body. And he's satisfied with nothing less. And if we're satisfied with something less, it simply shows like the disciples our lack of faith, our lack of belief, our lack of trust. C.S. Lewis has a great way to express this, and I'll read a couple lines. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. So just imagine this, put yourself in your imagination. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house that you are. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that you need that. Yeah, God, welcome into my house. This drain over here is plugged up. That obviously needs to be unplugged. The roof is leaking. Obviously, that thing needs to be fixed. Those are obvious solutions that, yes, God, I want you to do that. Lewis Lewis goes on, you know those that those jobs needed doing. So you're not surprised. You know the roof needs to be fixed. Of course he's going to rip it off. That makes sense. It's obvious. That's clear. He goes on, but presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense at all. What on earth is he up to? The The explanation is, that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, making courtyards. God starts doing stuff in your life that you are like, time out. Like, yes, I need to be forgiven of my sin and you know, like a couple things, yeah, no, I probably need to be cleaned up a little bit, but like, hey, get me 30% there and I'm, God's not satisfied with 30%. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to make you holy. He wants to make you fully his through and through your whole spirit, soul, and body. Lewis concludes, you thought you were being made in to a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Sometimes are you like me, and you're like, you know what? I'm good with being a nice little cottage for God. My little babbling brook. I'm good with just being a little cottage for God. But God's not interested, and God's not satisfied. And it's precisely because he's loving that he's not satisfied. He's not willing to allow you to simply be a nice little cottage in your own imagination and in your own dreams. He's actually building a palace and he will stop at no lengths to make you fully his. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. It's a probing question. God is bigger than you naturally think. And his agenda goes deeper than you could possibly imagine. Maybe God's got a one rating in terms of your circumstances. But in terms of his work in your life to truly bring about something that is beautiful and something that conforms to the person of Christ, God's always about a five-star job. A bad rating, a biting accusation, a probing question, lastly, an ultimate power. Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's kind of interesting what happens here. Notice something. The disciples are merely afraid of the storm. The storm is totally calm. And what happens? Now they're terrified. Like you went think that. You would think, oh, like the storm is done. It's over. Now they're good to go. Now it's all calm. It's the storm is done. They're no longer afraid of the storm. Now they're terrified of Jesus. Now they're, they're, they're more terrified of Jesus than they were fearful of the storm, which is totally bizarre. But that's partly because the cross is still coming, if you're simply dealing with the holy God who has power over the universe, who has power over nature, who has power over you, you should be terrified if that's the only God that you're dealing with. But the fact of the matter is that this Jesus who they were terrified by would be nailed to a cross. This Jesus who hushed the waves and had absolute power over nature his back would be beaten to a pulp and he would be crucified on a cross so that you and I would no longer have to be terrified but actually could be recipients of his grace and forgiveness and his new life in our lives. In Psalm 65, in ancient times, they actually saw the turbulent seas as symbolic of the turbulence of the nations. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but in Psalm chapter 65, verses six and seven, it talks about the characteristics of God. And it says this God who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. And so when God calms the seas, when Jesus calms the seas, he's not just saying, Oh, I'm in charge of nature. He's also saying, in the ancient understanding, I'm in charge of everything, I'm in charge of the nations. And so the the tumultuousness, the the storm-tossedness of the seas was actually a picture of the violence, the trauma happening on the planet, the nations in an uproar. So Jesus is saying, look, I am in charge of everything. And they're terrified. Just what I want to spend the last little bit on is this. What's interesting to me is that Jesus brings the calmness of the ocean, the calmness of the sea, I should say, out of the storm. One thing that fascinates me always in Easter is this, when the disciples come to the empty tomb, they don't find a crucified body and then run into Jesus in some other body that's disconnected from his crucified body. They go into the empty tomb and his body isn't there. They run into Jesus' new body, and it literally still is now prints in it, meaning that what it means for Jesus to transform pain, hardship, and suffering, it's, it's not as though he just takes a giant eraser and swipes it away. When you stand before God and your hardest struggles, your most difficult challenges, things that cause you the most pain. It's not as if God says, okay, like, hey, it never happened. Like the, like the miracle is not like you forget about it all. The miracle is not that it sort of, God takes a giant cosmic eraser and wipes the slate clean. It's not the way it works. He will not wipe your suffering clean your suffering, your hardship, your pain will actually be transformed into something that brings him glory. And so it's not as if just a negative is going to be wiped away. The negative is actually transformed and changed into that which gives him glory. And so your pain, your suffering, your hardship God doesn't take a rice and says, like, like all gone. It's like it never happened. No, it will not be like it never happened. Instead, it will actually contribute to God's glory and his beauty. And you will be a glorious representation of the goodness of God. Listen, listen, to this not in spite of suffering. The waves were not calm in spite of the storm. The storm actually highlighted their calmness. God's transforming power was at work, and it will be the same in your life as well, as it was for the resurrection of Jesus. His crucified body actually became his resurrected body. It became transformed. Your suffering and your pain will be transformed. You don't simply leave it behind. It becomes actually part of the beauty of the grand story of your life, of who God created you to be. Our team is going to come out, and we're going to close by singing Silent Night. We sing this on Christmas services as well. I love the song. And I just want you to lean into the, the beauty of the song. It talks about sleeping. It talks about sleeping in heavenly peace. Sleeping is not just inactivity. Sleeping is rest. Sleeping is giving ourselves to God. Jesus sleeps as a baby. He's asleep in the boat, and yet his power is still active. It's still with us, it's still present. Even though he may seem to be at the wrong time, at the wrong place, he's still involved. Maybe your life isn't peaceful at this moment. But the peace of the God who sleeps, even though he's at work, can fill your soul. Let's stand and sing the song. Thank you that you are not content to leave us alone. Thank you that you came in the person of Jesus, that you were conceived by the Holy Spirit. And thank you that you're still not content to leave us alone, that your Holy Spirit is at work and to make us more like yourself, to sanctify us, to make us more yours. And we pray that we would be open to your work in our lives and realize that you transform all things, even our pain and our suffering, as part of the grand, good, glorious, and beautiful story that you are writing. We ask these things in your name and everyone who agrees, said, amen. amen, amen. Our team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. God bless. Thank you.